The first known mention of diabetes symptoms was from an Egyptian physician who documented frequent urination as a symptom of a mysterious disease. Ancient healers also noted that ants seemed to be attracted to the urine of people who had this disease. As physicians learned more about diabetes, they began to understand how it could be managed. The first diabetes treatment involved prescribed exercise, such as horseback riding, which was thought to relieve excessive urination. We have come a long way since then. Doctors Banting and Best used insulin to successfully treat a diabetic patient in 1922. Today, insulin is still the primary therapy used to treat type 1 diabetes. However, other medications have since been developed to help control blood glucose levels in type 2 diabetes. From its discovery to the significant advances in its treatment, many brilliant minds have played a part in the intriguing history of diabetes. Today, our patient has type 2 diabetes, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is on non-insulin antihyperglycemic management of type 2 diabetes and is entitled Sweet Pea. Okay, now, time for a minute physiology. Imagine you just ate a big meal, like a big bowl of pasta, and your body is absorbing all of these nutrients from your digestive system into your bloodstream. One of these nutrients is glucose, which your body wants to store in places like the adipose tissue, liver, and muscle, so that it can be used for energy when the body needs it. Glucose cannot get into the cells alone. It needs insulin to help it. Insulin promotes glucose storage. In the liver, insulin stimulates glycolysis, which leads to the breakdown of glucose into ATP, and glycogenesis, which is the formation of glycogen from glucose. In adipose tissue, insulin suppresses lipolysis. In type 2 diabetes, there are three main defects that lead to hyperglycemia. The first is insulin deficiency due to insufficient pancreatic insulin release. The second is excess glucose output by the liver. And the third is insulin resistance or decreased glucose uptake by peripheral tissues including muscle, fat, and the liver. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. You are asked to see a middle-aged female with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes who wants to know about the different treatment options available to her. According to the Canadian Diabetes Association, a diagnosis of diabetes is made when a person's HbA1c is greater or equal to 6.5% and or their fasting plasma glucose is greater or equal to 7.0 millimoles per liter. Now, in all patients newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, lifestyle modifications such as diet, exercise, weight loss, smoking cessation, and minimizing alcohol consumption should be initiated. Furthermore, vascular risk factors such as hypertension and hyperlipidemia should be optimized. Full guidelines for managing these risk factors can be found on the Canadian Diabetes Association and Canadian Cardiovascular Society website. In short, however, blood pressure targets for patients with diabetes is 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury, and lipid targets would be an LDL less or equal to 2.0 millimoles per liter, or 50% of the patient's initial value. In patients with type 2 diabetes with an HbA1c less than 1.5% above the person's individualized target, medication should be added if glycemic targets are not achieved within three months of initiating lifestyle modifications. In patients with type 2 diabetes with an A1C target greater or equal to 1.5% above their personalized target, medication should be initiated at the same time as lifestyle modifications. 
Prior to initiating any therapy with non-insulin antihyperglycemic agents, baseline A1C, liver, and kidney function should be known, as any of these medications can have an effect on the liver and the kidney and or are cleared by the liver and the kidney. Now, the easiest way to remember the different medications is to split them into groups based on their mechanism of action. We'll start with a group of medications known as biguanides, which includes the drug metformin. Metformin is the most common medication prescribed for type 2 diabetes, and it is also the first-line medication for the disease. Metformin directly increases the peripheral insulin sensitivity. It also decreases hepatic gluconeogenesis. It is associated with weight loss and improvement in the lipid profile. It reduces the A1C by about 1%. Metformin is contraindicated in patients who have factors that predispose them to lactic acidosis, such as impaired renal function with an EGFR less than 30 mls per minute, and liver failure. Side effects include diarrhea and abdominal cramps. Metformin is also associated with B12 deficiency and requires renal dose adjustment. The remaining medications we'll discuss are all considered second-line to metformin. The next group of medications are called secretagogues. These can be divided into two subclasses, sulfonylureas and non-sulfonylureas. All sulfonylureas start with GLI or GLY, and those most commonly used are glycoside, glimepiride, and gliburide. Sulfonylureas act on potassium channels on the beta cells within the pancreas to stimulate endogenous insulin secretion. These reduce the A1C by 0.7 to 1.3%. Some of the common side effects are hypoglycemia and weight gain, and caution should be taken in elderly patients as the risk of hypoglycemia can predispose to other conditions such as falls. Impairment of liver or kidney function will increase the risk of hypoglycemia and is also a contraindication to use of this medication. The next group of non-sulfonylurea secretagogues are meglitinides. As you can tell by the name of secretagogues, these group of medications, including the sulfonylureas and the non-sulfonylureas, will increase your insulin secretion from the pancreas. Repaglinide is the only available meglitinide in Canada. Meglitinides also stimulate insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells. They have a more rapid onset and shorter duration of action compared to sulfonylureas, which makes it a good choice for patients with primarily postprandial hyperglycemia. Because of their short duration of action, they may be taken three or even four times daily. Common side effects include hypoglycemia and weight gain. However, the risk of both appears to be lower in comparison to sulfonylureas. Both sulfonylureas and meglitinides are metabolized by the cytochrome P450 enzymes, so it is important to check for drug interactions before prescribing them. The next and perhaps newest class of medications is the sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors, or SGLT2 inhibitors for short. These medications end in gliflozin, such as canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, and empagliflozin. They inhibit the SGLT2 transporter in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidney that is responsible for 90% of glucose reabsorption. Inhibition of SGLT2 leads to increased urinary glucose excretion and thus decreases blood glucose levels. These reduce the A1C by about 0.4 to 0.7%. Side effects are thirst and osmotic diuresis that can lead to hypotension. There is also an increased risk of UTI and genital infections. Caution is required in patients who are elderly, who use loop diuretics, or have renal dysfunction. 
Treatment with SGLT2 inhibitors should be withheld prior to major surgery or with serious illness or infections, as there is a risk of euglycemic DKA. Dapagliflozin should not be used in patients with bladder cancer. Canagliflozin increases risk of fractures and lower extremity amputation and should not be used in patients with prior history of these conditions. The next two group of medications act upon the incretin pathway and are known as incretins. Incretins, such as glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, are hormones secreted by the gut in response to food ingestion, and their job is to stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin. Incretins also slow gastric emptying and inhibit glucagon release. However, incretins are rapidly inactivated by an enzyme called DPP-4 for short. Scientists were able to develop GLP-1 agonists, which are resistant to inactivation by DPP-4. GLP-1 agonists tend to end in TIDE and include exenatide, liraglutide, and semaglutide. These agents require subcutaneous injections and reduce the A1C by about 1%. Some side effects include weight loss and GI upset. GLP-1 agonists should not be used in patients with a history of pancreatitis or in those with a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer or MEN2A. Another way to enhance the effects of incretin hormones is to simply inhibit DPP-4, which is responsible for the inactivation of GLP-1. DPP-4 inhibitors end in glyptin and include linagliptin, saxagliptin, and citagliptin. These reduce the A1C by about 0.5 to 0.7%. Side effects most commonly reported are nasopharyngitis and headache. Some DPP-4 inhibitors have been associated with joint pain. Saxagliptin may be associated with an increased risk of congestive heart failure. DPP-4 inhibitors should also not be initiated in any patient with a history of pancreatitis. Depending on the agent, some DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists may require renal dose adjustment. The next class we will discuss are the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, of which A-carbose is the most common drug in this class. Alpha-glucosidase is an enzyme located in intestines responsible for breaking down carbohydrates into simple sugars like glucose. When alpha-glucosidase inhibitors block this enzyme, absorption of carbohydrates is delayed, resulting in lower postprandial glucose levels. The A1C lowering effect of this drug is lower than other medications and on average is 0.7 to 0.8%, and they are most useful when used in combination with other agents. The main side effects are gastrointestinal, including bloating, diarrhea, and flatulence. The last group of medications have a somewhat difficult name. They are thiazolidinediones, or TZDs for short. These end in glitazone, such as pioglitazone and rosiglitazone. TZDs activate a receptor known as the peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma, or PPAR gamma for short. PPAR-gamma is a transcription factor for multiple genes that increase insulin sensitivity in adipose, muscle, and liver cells. Major side effects include weight gain, edema, including pulmonary edema, and congestive heart failure. There is a higher occurrence of fractures in patients on TCDs. There is also controversy that rosiglitazone may increase the risk of myocardial infarction. Therefore, some of the contraindications for TZDs are heart failure, history of fracture, and active liver disease. Pioglitazone is contraindicated in patients with bladder cancer. Due to several side effects and risks of this class of medications, they have essentially fallen out of favor in the last decade. Now, time for a medicine minute. 
In patients with clinical cardiovascular disease in whom A1C targets are not achieved with existing pharmacotherapy, an antihyperglycemic agent with demonstrated cardiovascular outcome benefit should be added to reduce cardiovascular risk. These agents include the SGLT2 inhibitors empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and the GLP-1 agonists liraglutide and semaglutide. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work on non-insulin management of type 2 diabetes entitled Sweet Pea. An associated infographic as well as relevant resources can be found at our website at www.theinternetwork.com. This episode was written by Dr. Sapna Shah, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Shobha Sujana Kumar, endocrinology, and Dr. Peter Wu, internal medicine and clinical pharmacology and toxicology. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai, music production by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. The Internet Work series is created by Alison Lai and is developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.